Part 5 of Rebels of the Red Planet by Charles Louis Fontenay, read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Rebels of the Red Planet 9. From the time she saw Dark Kensington die until Newell's arrival at the Chateau Nectaris a day later, Maya remained in her room, half in shock, half in an agony of sorrow and remorse. She was so exhausted by her ordeal that she did sleep, but it was fitfully and without genuine rest. She had her meal sent up to her room and ate automatically, not tasting the food. Rationally, she could in no way blame herself for Dark's death, but that did not prevent her feeling strongly that her insistence on tracking down the fugitives from the Childress Barber College had made her, directly, his slayer. Her feeling of distress was much deeper and more personal than normal regret at having brought about the death of a friendly enemy while in pursuit of her duty. Maya realized that in those few hours she had been with Dark and talked to him, something had taken root and flowered that had changed her whole outlook on existence. She did not want to call it love. She was a very practical young woman and did not believe in love on such short notice. But, in examining her feelings, she was at a loss as to what else to call it. She had felt a powerful attraction to this man, a tremendous admiration and liking for him, a feeling of belonging in his presence. She had sensed his strength. It had appalled her when she had had to oppose herself to him in keeping him captive. But in other circumstances she felt it was the sort of strength she could depend on. Willingly, she thought now, she could have dispensed with everything else in her life and followed Dark Kensington wherever he chose to wander, a fugitive among the deserts and lowlands. And Newell? Her feeling for him had not changed. She was still attracted to him, and she still admired him. But the admiration she had felt for his sharp, sardonic handling of his opponents in a court of law seemed a little shallow and a little immature in comparison to the sudden onrush of what she sensed about Dark. Since her early teens she had been an eager enemy of those rebels whom she conceived to be disrupting the orderly settlement of Mars, and her desire to contribute to the defeat of those rebels had been a disciplining, integrating force in her personality. Yet, in only a few short hours of quiet talk, Dark had cut the foundation from that force and dissipated it. If only she had not delayed, if only she had made up her mind decisively to what she felt now, Dark need not have died, she could have freed him, and together they could have left Solus Lacus. With him she would have fought as hard for the rebel cause as in the past she had fought against it. But now it was too late, and, moping tearfully in her room, she found that she didn't care any more, one way or another, about the struggle between Mars Corp and the rebels. By the time Newell arrived from Mars City she had regained control over her feelings. When he telephoned her in her room she went down to the lobby to meet him, pale but composed. She had a strange feeling as she came out into the big lobby, arching up above its balconies, a feeling as though she had been away in a distant land for a very long time, and was just returning to the world she had known all her life. In this returning she looked upon things with new ideas, 
and they did not appear the same as before. This was the same spacious lobby across which she had walked to register when she came to Solus Lacus from Mars City a few days ago. It was the same lobby in which, looking down from the balcony, she had seen Dark Kensington arriving. It was the same lobby in which she had sat with Dark and talked for so long. But it seemed a strange place, a different place, one that looked like the lobby she remembered but in which she had never walked before. Newell was standing across the lobby with the two police officers from Ophir, beside a long wooden box that rested on the floor next to the registration counter. Behind the counter, Quellman Grin, the manager of Chateau Nectaris, was sorting the day's mail. Newell saw her, detached himself from the others, and came across the lobby to meet her. As he approached, she experienced the same feeling toward him that she had felt toward the lobby. He was like someone she had known, but a different person. There was a worried frown on Newell's face, and she managed to get something of disapproval in his greeting kiss. "'It's lucky I called Ophir and had those men sent over here,' were his first words. "'If they hadn't gotten here when they did, that rebel might have killed you and escaped. I told you, Maya, not to try to handle a situation like that.' "'It was very astute of you to send them over,' answered Maya dryly. "'I should have thought of it myself.' "'That's exactly why you shouldn't try to handle such things alone,' said Newell, apparently somewhat mollified. Maya looked into his face, a handsome, youthful face, bearing a slightly peeved expression. And she thought two things. She thought of the long and intensive training she had undergone as a terrestrial agent, and she contemplated just how effectively Newell might have handled Dark's capture, had Newell been in her place. "'Come on, Maya, let's clear this up, so we can get out of here and get back to Mars City,' said Newell, and led her across the lobby to the two policemen and the wooden box. The two men from Ophir greeted her with a certain embarrassment, and seemed relieved when she smiled wanly at them. These men have told me how the rebel had turned the tables and gained the advantage of you before their arrival," said Newell. They said that before he was killed, he confessed to them that he was Dark Kensington, one of the major rebel leaders who escaped from the Childress Barber College. I believe that coincides with your identification of him, doesn't it?" "'Yes,' answered Maya in a low voice. He was Dark Kensington. I saw him once at the college, and he identified himself to me then as a supervisor." She did not feel called on to say anything more, and to tell Newell what Dark himself had told her about the rebellion and his part in it. "'Very good,' said Newell, with satisfaction. "'We've captured the chief, the peculiar-looking individual who escaped by driving his copter through the city dome. All the indications are that he and Kensington were the top two figures in the rebellion. I think all that's needed now is for you to identify the body positively as Kensington, Maya." He indicated the wooden box, which lay lidless on the floor. Reluctantly, Maya stepped up to it and looked down into it. The pain which distorted Dark's face when he lay writhing from the heat-gun blast was gone from his features. They were calm and peaceful in death. Maya gazed down at his face wistfully sorrowfully, then turned away. "'Well?' asked Newell impatiently. "'Yes,' she murmured, "'that's Dark Kensington.' 
Very good, said Newell, and turned to the two men. We'll take the body to the hydroponic farm for the vats, he said. There'll be others after the trials and executions of the rebels we've captured. Do you have to do that? protested Maya. Why can't you give the man a decent burial out here in the lowland? Don't interfere in matters which are none of your affair, replied Newell brusquely. Bodies of criminals are all we sent to the vats. They're constantly short of bodies as it is, and we can't very well send them corpses of law-abiding citizens. He turned away. As Maya accompanied him across the corridor, the two men from Ophir began nailing the lid on the wooden box that contained Dark Kensington's remains. At the elevator, Newell said, "'Get your things packed as soon as you can. I want to go back to Mars City right away by copter. I have some things I want to talk to you about, very seriously, but they can wait until we're airborne.' "'Why by copter?' asked Maya. "'Ground car is faster.' For the first time, Newell's face broke into a genuine smile, and his ordinary charming self shone through. "'Because,' he replied drolly, "'I've just made that trip by ground-car, and every bone in my body aches. It may be slower, but I want to go back by air, where there aren't as many bumps.' Maya was able to laugh at this. She went up to her room. It did not take her long to pack, and to dress in a tunic and trousers for travel. When she came back down to the lobby, Newell was waiting, and they took a ground car from the chateau to the dome airlock. The three government agents who had come with Newell from Mars City had the helicopter ready for them on the flat lowland just beyond the airlock. As the ground car emerged onto the sage-covered plain, the men were helping the two policemen from Ophir unload the box containing Dark Kensington's remains from another ground car and load it into the baggage bay of the copter. Newell and Maya slipped into their Mars suits, secured the helmets, and climbed out of the ground car. Newell gave his men some final instructions to follow before returning to Mars City by ground car. Then he and Maya went aboard the copter. They strapped themselves in the seats. Newell sealed the copter door and released oxygen from the tanks into the interior. When the dial showed the air to be breathable, he and Maya removed their helmets. Newell started the motor, and the craft lifted slowly and smoothly into the air above the Solus Lacus lowland. Newell headed the copter northwestward. As soon as they were well on course, he turned to Maya with a stern expression on his face. "'There's one thing I can't understand at all,' he said severely. "'What madness possessed you to resist those men I sent over from Ophir and attempt to help Kensington escape?' She looked at him steadily, without replying. What should she answer? Could she say, "'I discovered that I had fallen in love with dark Kensington. I found that his reasons for the rebellion made sense to me.' and that you and the government and Mars Corp are wrong. What would Newell's reaction be if she told this truth? But it could do no good to say that. It could do the rebels no good, because now they were scattered and defeated. It could do Dark no good, because he was dead. She did not think she would suffer personally from such a revelation, but it could only hurt Newell, who loved her. So at last she said, "'Newell, I'd rather not talk about that. I didn't succeed, so can we forget it?' "'I think it's best that we do,' agreed Newell. 
The only thing I can think is that you were slightly hysterical over Kensington's having gained the upper hand, after the strain of guarding him for so long, and your action was an unconscious expression of resentment at their having to take over his custody where you had failed. But we might have learned a great deal through questioning the man at length, and that action of yours made it necessary for them to kill him." Newell could not know how deeply those words struck her. She turned her face away from him, and the tears came to her eyes. "'At any rate,' went on Newell, unaware, "'I think this demonstrates that these espionage activities have been far too much of a strain for you, and I think it's time you stopped. We have one of the two major leaders captured, and the other one dead, and I don't think they're going to give us much more trouble, even if we don't locate all the fugitives. So, I want you to give up this idea of wandering around from city to city, helping identify rebels." "'I think you're right,' she agreed in a choked voice. She had no more interest now, certainly, in tracking down rebels. "'And,' continued Newell even more firmly, "'marry me when we get back to Mars City.' "'Well, why not? Newell loved her. What else was there for her?' "'Yes, I'll do that, too,' she said. "'As soon as we get back, I'll make out my report and send my resignation with it back on the first ship to Earth. Then I'll marry you, Newell.' His face was radiant and triumphant as he turned to her. He put his arm around her shoulders, drew her to him, and kissed her. The helicopter flew northwestward. Passing over the Solus Lacus lowland, it crossed the Thaumasia Desert and the Tithonius Lacus lowland, and whirred above the desert of Candor. Above it, after a time, there rose on the horizon the white stone forms of a distant group of buildings. Newell dropped the helicopter lower. He angled it down, and in a short time landed it on the desert near one of the four buildings of the Canfell Hydroponic Farm. As he and Maya donned their Mars helmets, a group of Mars-suited men emerged from the building's airlock and came across the sand toward them. Maya stared curiously out the copter window. She had heard of this government experimental station, but had not visited it before. "'This is another reason I wanted to take a copter,' explained Newell, releasing the air from the copter's interior. "'There aren't any roads to this place, and I didn't want to drive a ground car across the desert to bring Kensington's body here.' They emerged from the copter as the group from the building approached. Newell greeted the five of them and introduced them to Maya. Four of them were strangers to her, but the fifth she remembered. Goat Hennessy, white-bearded and watery-eyed. "'How are you adjusting to your new work here, Dr. Hennessy?' Newell asked him. "'Very well,' answered Goat in his cracked voice. "'They're using a different approach from mine, but I find it extremely interesting.' Remembering Goat's earlier experiments at Ultravirus, it occurred to Maya to be grateful that Dark had not fallen alive into the hands of these people at the Canfell Hydroponic Farm. Their entire stop lasted only a few minutes. Newell refused an invitation to remain overnight, explaining that he was anxious to get on to Mars City. The others unloaded Dark's coffin and moved with it back towards the building. Newell and Maya climbed back into the copter, and shortly they were airborne again, and the buildings of the Canfell Hydroponic Farm were receding behind and below them. Newell guided the copter almost straight westward now. 
it passed over Candor and buzzed out over the broad Xanthi Desert. And here trouble developed. Without warning, the engine coughed and stopped. Newell worked frantically at the controls to no avail. As the big blades slowed in their rotation, the copters sank, slowly at first, then ever more swiftly to the surface of the desert. They donned Mars helmets hurriedly. It struck with a terrific crash, which would have hurled them through the windows had they not been strapped down. The entire body of the copter crumpled in on itself, and it came to a rest a collapsed wreck, with the two of them sitting in its midst, miraculously uninjured. There was no question of trying to start the engines or fly the machine. It was a total wreck. Newell tried the radio without success. "'What in space went wrong with the thing?' he demanded angrily. "'I know it wasn't short of fuel. There's nothing left for us to do but walk, I'm afraid, Maya.' "'Back to the hydroponic farm?' "'No, we've come too far. By my chart, we're not that far from ultra-virus. I think we better try to make it for the night, and if Goat left his radio equipment in working order, we'll call for help. If not, the only thing I know to do is to head for Ophir.' Ultra-virus. Maya remembered it with a shudder. The grim, black bastion in the desert where Goat Hennessy had worked with grotesque, twisted caricatures of humans. They fumbled about the wreck to find the minimum emergency supplies they thought they would need, and started westward, on foot. 10. Happy Thurbelow finished sweeping the long barracks and leaned wearily on his broom. That is, he didn't lean on it, or it would have collapsed him to the floor, but he made the gesture. Why, he wondered, didn't the masters make the toughs sweep their own barracks? Perhaps the toughs couldn't be made, or perhaps the masters did it just from an excess of cruelty. Happy's monstrously bloated body sagged, and his skin felt dangerously dry and tight. Happy was so adipose that his hands engulfed the broom handle like a toothpick. Under the transparent skin, his flesh was clear and translucent, and there could be seen the tiny red lines of the branching veins. Happy was like a jellyfish, in huge human form. "'Shadow!' he called in a high, grating voice. "'I'm going below!' Shadow appeared disconcertingly ten feet away. Dark-skinned Shadow looked at him silently with white-rimmed eyes. Then Shadow turned and disappeared, as only Shadow could. Hanging up the broom, Happy waddled to the iron-barred gate that prevented entrance to a downward-plunging ramp. He pressed a button beside it and waited. He looked out the window beside the gate. The sands of the Desert of Candor stretched orange and bleak under the bronze sky. Somewhere out there to the south, across the sands, under that sky, lay the shining dome of Ophir. The window would be easily broken, and it was large enough for even Happy's bulky body to pass through. But the oxygen-scant air of Mars would sear his lungs to quick death without a helmet, and even if it would not, Happy's skin would dry and crack in a few hours of that outside air, and he would die in slower agony. "'What is the purpose of your call?' asked an impersonal voice from the loudspeaker beside the barred gate. "'I have finished my task, master,' said Happy, puffing a little. "'I seek your grace to go below.' 
The loudspeaker said no more, but after a moment the gate stirred and lifted into the ceiling. Happy went through it gratefully and waddled down the gently sloping ramp. The gate descended behind him. Happy did not know whether Shadow had come through the open gate with him, but it didn't matter. Shadow could slip easily through the bars when he wished. At the foot of the ramp was a vast low cavern, stretching out of sight in all directions. It was dim, shading into the darkness of distance. Its floor was water, flat water, subdivided into large rectangular vats. In most of the vats vegetation grew in various stages, greening under the ultraviolet rays that radiated from the low roof. Between the vats ran straight, narrow walkways of packed earth. Happy waddled along one of the walkways until he found an empty vat. He lowered himself over its edge and sank happily into the still, cool water, like a hippopotamus submerging. He immersed himself completely, then lay back in the water, with only his face floating barely above the surface. Shadow appeared, apparently out of nowhere, and sat down on the edge of the vat, letting his flat legs dangle into the water. "'Nothing like it,' proclaimed Happy, splashing a little. "'Nothing on Mars like it. You ought to come in, Shadow. As flat as you are, you ought to float on the surface without any trouble at all.' Shadow nodded silently, but made no move. "'I don't see why the Tufts can't take care of their own barracks.' complained Happy, returning to the subject closest to his displeasure. "'You reckon the Tufts are actually the rebels, and the Masters can't make them do anything?' Shadow shook his head, but whether in negation or disclaimer of knowledge, Happy could not interpret. Happy flinched and shifted in the vat. "'There's still part of a skeleton in here,' he announced. "'I thought this was an empty one.' Moving, he flinched again. With purpose, he aroused himself and plowed to the edge of the vat. "'I've got to find another vat,' he said. "'I can't nap if I'm going to get punched in the fanny with bones every five minutes.' He heaved himself over the edge onto the walkway with difficulty, and got slowly to his feet. Shadow lifted his feet out of the vat, stood up, and vanished. Happy knew how Shadow was able to disappear so suddenly, and it did not disturb him. Seen directly from front or rear, Shadow had the dimensions of a normal, black-skinned man. But Shadow was flat, no thicker than half an inch. When Shadow turned sidewise, he vanished to the sight. Occasionally, Happy wondered how Shadow happened to be, and why he was here in the caverns, but it was not the sort of thing to bother his mind for very long. Happy moved along the walkways, peering into the vats which appeared to be empty. He assumed Shadow was following him. Shadow always did. Around corners he came upon blubbery creatures like himself, tending the plants. They nodded greeting at him, and Happy nodded back. His search was discouraging. All the vats not filled with plants seemed to have corpses in them, in varying stages of decomposition. Around one corner Happy came upon a tough, lounging in the walkway. The tough was a compact, muscular youth, with bullet head, sullen eyes, and hard mouth. He looked as though he lounged with hands in pockets, but, like Happy and all the others, he was naked, so that was just an impression. Happy stopped. He and his soft kind avoided the toughs when they could. 
The tough looked at him with disinterested eyes, then looked away. Happy was uncertain what to do or say. His impulse was to turn and go back, but he did not quite dare. "'Are you a rebel, tough?' he burbled the first thing in his mind, for lack of something else to say. The tough looked at him contemptuously. Then suddenly the tough's hard eyes flared with savage excitement, and he moved swiftly on Happy. As he began to turn in panic, Happy saw from the corner of his eye another tough racing around the corner of the walkway to come upon him from behind. The tough in front of him reached him and began pummeling him viciously with his fists, the hard fists sinking like painful hammers deep into Happy's flesh with every blow. Happy bleated in fright and distress, trying ineffectually to ward off his attacker. Then, out of nowhere, Shadow flashed in like a lightning bolt on the other tough, as he had almost reached Happy. There was a brief, squalling tangle, and the tough pitched headlong into the plant-choked vat. Shadow vanished and reappeared, intermittently, like a flashing light. The first tough, seeing what happened to his cohort, ceased pummeling Happy abruptly and took to his heels. He vanished around a corner. The vanquished tough climbed out of the vat, sputtering and cursing, and fled in the other direction. "'Oh, my! Oh, my!' exclaimed Happy to the now invisible shadow. "'What wicked creatures!' Sore and shaken, he moved on down the walkway, his search now intensified by the need for wetness to soothe his injured flesh. He came upon a vat without vegetation, and, at first joyous glance, thought it empty. Then, disappointment, a comparatively fresh body floated in it, just under the surface. It was the body of a man. Naked, it was smooth and plump with the water that had seeped into its tissues, and it was a uniform dead white all over, like the belly of a fish. The face and lips were monochrome white, the hair was bleached, and when it opened its eyes, they were so colorless that the action was almost unnoticeable. Realizing, Happy was paralyzed with shock. The dead creature's eyes moved from side to side, then stopped, fixing on Happy. Its chest began to rise and fall slowly, with breathing, underwater. "'Shadow!' squeaked Happy helplessly. Shadow appeared beside him. "'Shadow, it's alive!' whispered Happy, desperately frightened. The two stood side by side, staring breathlessly down into the water. The creature in the vat moved its hands tentatively. It opened its mouth and closed it. Then it stirred with purpose, turned, and climbed up over the side of the vat, dripping like a weird creature from the depths of the sea. It stood up before them, dripping. The man bent slightly and belched forth a great quantity of water from his lungs. He straightened and breathed in the air in great, satisfied gasps. "'I'm Dark Kensington,' he said in a rusty voice. "'Where is this?' At his words, Shadow disappeared. Dark Kensington. Had Maya seen him now, she could not possibly have recognized him. The muscular body and dark, handsome face were bloated and pale. The black hair was bleached to pale seaweed, and the blue eyes were completely colorless now. "'This is the Canfell Hydroponic Farm,' 
answered Happy, gaining a little courage. Under the surface of the desert of candor. The desert of candor, repeated Dark, and the pale lips twisted in a smile. They hauled me quite away. I was at Solus Lacus. How did you get here? asked Happy with sudden eagerness. Only dead people are thrown in the vats to make chemicals for the plants. How could you stay alive under water? I imagine I can breathe water for the same reason I can still live after a heat beam burned my guts out, but I don't know what that reason is. I imagine that the first step in finding out is to get out of this place. You can't get away from here, said Happy positively. Nobody ever has. We'll see, said Dark confidently. I gather you and your companion are some sort of prisoners. Slaves, corrected Happy with unaccustomed bitterness. The jellies are slaves to work in the vats. I don't know if the toughs are slaves, too, but the masters let them sleep in barracks on the surface. Shadow's not either a jelly or a tough, and I don't know if he's a slave. Shadow's just shadow. Before you go on, interrupted Dark, I seem to be extraordinarily hungry. Happy twittered and quivered. He moved hurriedly around a corner to one of the storage vats, and returned in a moment with a supply of the tasteless gelatin that was their food here. Dark fell too greedily, and Happy, his tongue loosed by this new companionship, started feeding him information in a steady stream. "'I don't know how they get us here,' said Happy. "'We aren't born here, but something happens to our memories. We can't stay up in the dry air very long, or our skin cracks and our flesh collapses. You see, our tissues are mostly water. Everybody down here is like me, everybody but the toughs. You'll see them. I don't know how they got here either, or what use they are. They don't work like we do. And Shadow, he's different. Shadow likes me. He stays with me all the time. And then there's Old Beard. He hides down here, and I don't think the masters know he's here. He's very old and very wise. Who are the masters? asked Dark curiously between mouthfuls. And what sort of work do you do for them? They're the people who run the hydroponic farm. They're normal men, like you. I mean, like you would be, if you weren't swollen up and pale like the bodies that are thrown in the vats. Old Beard knows. He's very wise. He calls the masters Mars Corp. I don't know why, but it seems that before I lost my memory, I knew a language where corp meant body, like corpse, you know. Maybe it has something to do with the bodies they put in the vats. Old Beard says that the masters are developing Martian foods that we can eat without dying, and he must be right, because sometimes they bring down some hard foods and make some of us eat them instead of gelatin. But those who eat the hard foods always die, so I don't suppose they've succeeded yet, except some of the toughs. Some of the toughs have eaten the hard food without dying sometimes, and they get pretty sick. And then— Hold on, wait a minute, exclaimed Dark, holding up a restraining hand. I know what Mars Corp is, and I'm not surprised they're behind it, but I'm trying to digest all this you're throwing at me. Happy fell silent, reluctantly, and Dark cogitated deeply. 
Happy fidgeted, anxious to speak, but afraid to interrupt Dark's thoughts. And then Shadow reappeared. Shadow appeared out of nowhere, and made gestures at Happy. Happy glanced at Dark timidly. At last he gained courage to speak. "'Shadow tells me,' he began, then cringed when Dark looked up in surprise. Dark gestured to him to go on. "'Shadow tells me,' he began, then cringed when Dark looked up in surprise. Dark gestured to him to go on. "'Shadow tells me,' said Happy, "'that Old Beard wants to see you. Will you go with us to Old Beard?' "'Certainly,' agreed Dark. "'From what you tell me, I'm rather anxious to meet Old Beard, too.' He followed Happy and the alternately visible and invisible shadow along the paths that twisted among the vats for some distance. At last they ducked into some luxuriant foliage that hung over to form a bower above the space between two vats. Old Beard sat there, in a corner of the dimness, pale eyes fixed silently on the trio. Old Beard was not so very old. He appeared to be in robust middle age, although his skin was very pale from long existence underground. His hair and heavy beard were long and untrimmed, and were a deep iron gray. "'Thank you for coming,' said Old Beard in a deep, resonant voice that bespoke strength and bore an undertone of bitter determination. "'It is safer for me not to move around too much in the open except at certain hours. "'I was glad to come, because I'm sure you can help me, and I may be able to help you, too,' said Dark. "'I'm Dark Kensington.' "'So Shadow told me. I find this extremely interesting.' "'You've heard of me, then?' asked Dark. Old Beard laughed, deeply. "'More interesting than that,' he said. "'Once, before I was marooned here and Happy's people came to know me as Old Beard, I had a name of my own.' He stroked his beard and favored Dark with a shrewd look from his pale eyes. "'Yes,' said Old Beard. "'I've heard of Dark Kensington, and there never was but one Dark Kensington as far as I knew. That's why I find it so interesting. You see, I'm Dark Kensington.'" End of chapter 10